Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information from our experts that you need to know. Welcome back, everyone. I hope everyone is staying healthy in this time of global pandemic. And I hope you didn't miss us too badly, but like everyone else, we had to adjust to the realities of telework. But I wanted to get back to this podcast. And since a month ago, it's been about a month that we had what I called the viral episode that looked at the coronavirus. And at that time, it was something that was going on on the other side of the world. Very few cases within the United States. It was mostly something that was centered in China. And now we see it has reached the shores of the United States and really spread throughout Europe and elsewhere. And it is having ramifications, not only in economics, but also in foreign policy and how we're dealing with other countries. And we wanted to bring back the same three experts that we had a month ago to just go over this all over again. So today we have Alex Long, Ray Zong, and Shioko Goto. And if you want to just have a quick refresh, go back to what I called the viral episode, which was taking a look at uh, the economics, the public health, and the regional Chinese situation. And we're going to review that today. So first up, we will be with Alex Long. Welcoming back to the podcast, Alex Long. Uh, We spoke to Alex a few weeks ago, and really, the world has changed so much since we talked last. Uh, You know, when we talked before, there were only a few cases in the U.S. It was much more of a world problem. And of course, the Wilson Center is focused on a lot of things in the world. And so it was of interest to us then. Now we've turned inward and wanted to bring back Alex to talk about where we are today. So what's going on, Alex? Oh, so very much. First of all, thank you for having me back on the pod. Um, Before coming on today, I looked at where we were on February 27th when we initially recorded the first episode and the world was only at 82,000 cases and the world is now at 436,159. And I think we should probably timestamp this uh, today. Yeah. So that so today we're we're actually recording on March twenty fifth, and it's currently about eleven fifteen in the morning. So that is a good timestamp point on that. Great. And then on February twenty seventh, we were at two thousand eight hundred deaths. Now worldwide, we're at nineteen thousand six hundred forty eight. The biggest financial number, um, U.S. side was $2.5 billion requested from Trump. And now today, a $2 trillion relief package. (laughs) And not to mention the fact that the US, the big headline was also that we had our 15th case on February 27th. And today we have 55,238 confirmed cases, 802 deaths. So- So that really shows, I mean, that is one month really, you know, less two days, right? So uh, that shows how much this has changed in one month. Yeah, and I don't think that can be understated. And I want to preface the rest of this podcast or wherever the rest of this interview goes with saying that it is grim times and there really isn't an awesome way out, it seems, so far. We can get more into that. I just wanted to start yeah, there. So why don't you give us the um, kind of where, where the the epidemiologists, the public health experts, 
I think so for the last several days, everybody's kind of focusing on the shelter in place orders, how much toilet paper and milk are available at grocery stores, you know, gas prices falling. Um, When you have to kind of face the day to day of a shelter in place and sort of the the uh, the governmental orders, you lose sight of what is actually being talked about in the public health space. So. What is what is the public health officials take on these kinds of orders where states are doing them and where they aren't doing them? Why are some states okay with having a shelter in place and other states aren't? Well, so I think the biggest factor there is the amount of cases. So let's take New York for an example. Obviously, New York has become the epicenter of the pandemic in the U.S., if not the world. At the current moment, there are 26,000 cases out of New York State, 271 dead. 15,500 of those cases are from one of the five boroughs, which is astounding. And the shelter-in-place recommendations or the ones that are given by the governors of these states, uh, like New York, the public health community is seeing this as a patchwork Uh, response on the behalf of the national government. So it's been clear that people at the top don't necessarily want to impose a countrywide lockdown because not every state within the United States is experiencing what New York, California, and other states are. But that comes with its repercussions because New York should be seen as what is to come for a lot of other places. And that is what the public health officials are saying right now. To not see New York as the forever epicenter of this epidemic, but the epicenter right now. Um, I know that your audience probably has heard the words flatten the curve many, many times. Mm -hmm. Flattening the curve is what we're going for countrywide, but it can be extrapolated to statewide cases. So right now, New York is on the upscale of their curve. And they don't even think they're going to hit the peak until the third week of April. And I really want to say that again. Governor Cuomo said that the peak will be the third week of April. And that's even with all of the shelter-in-place orders that are in place. When I, and I think, you know, if we look at the case of Italy, which put a, which basically shut down the country on March 9th, uh, they only, in the last couple of days, as of March 23rd and 24th started to see a decline in reported cases. Am I right? Yes. So, and I think that looking to Italy would be important here. So Italy had another patchwork system of quarantines of certain locations and quote unquote lockdowns. Um, The technical terminology is being kind of used in a lot of different ways on a lot of different media outlets, but all to say Italy had a more patchwork way of containing the disease similar to America. Now, Italy's cases, as of today, uh, 69,000 roughly confirmed cases, 6,820 confirmed deaths, which reveals a case fatality rate just by the numbers currently of 9.8%. That, that is actually, I think, a very sobering statistic. So let, let's talk about the mortality rate or what we know about the mortality rate right now because that when we spoke before the mortality rate while higher than the flu was still you know what at 
two percent, I think, when we were when we were talked in the end of February. Yeah, roughly between two and three people were thinking. And now we know. Well, now we have more data because, unfortunately, more people have died. Right, and with more data comes its positives and its negatives. So, the positives being more data would presumably mean that more testing has occurred. Uh, more testing gets the number of infected up, which makes the denominator for the case fatality rate, which is number of dead over number of infected. And increasing the denominator brings down the case fatality rate. But I think what we need to be looking at if we're going to take a more inward view on the U.S. side is each country can have its own case fatality rate. So like I said, Italy's is very high. And say on the opposite end of that, a place like Singapore has a 0.3% case fatality rate based on their reports. And South Korea has a 1.3% case fatality rate. So we in the U.S. need to focus on testing to bring up that denominator so that we're able to really understand the scope of this disease. And testing has obviously been a hot button issue and something that has been getting a lot of press coverage for good reason. But with all of these shelter-in-place protocols and by following the social distancing measures that have been recommended to the entire United States, we have the ability to bring down um, our case fatality rate. Though, if we don't follow these procedures, while we will still be testing a lot and we'll be bringing up that number of infected, increasing that denominator, we then run the risk of overrunning the healthcare system and putting ourselves in a place like New York right now, where uh, public health infrastructures are not ready for the amount of people coming in, which would then potentially drive up the rate of those unable to get the correct medical procedures. And if we don't respect these shelter-in-place protocols and we don't respect what the CDC is guiding America to do or recommending America to do, more people could get infected, which also would mean that more people would die. So I want to turn this over to you, Alex. Tell us what people really should be thinking about right now. We got all these stay-at-home orders in place. People who work in non-essential businesses are finding themselves having to stay home. Uh, hourly workers are facing issues. Everybody, of course, wants to keep their families safe and healthy. What should people be thinking about right now? It's a good question. I think one thing that I would like to impart is hysteria and also the words that are said by people on top about medications that may or may not be actually useful um, in this time and where we are with antiviral treatments and things like that. So, for example, with hydroxychloroquine, which is a malaria medication. Is that the malaria medication that's been talked about? Okay. Yes, it's an anti-malarial, but also it's used daily by people with uh, lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. Because there are preliminary reports that it could be useful um, in these very non-robust clinical trials, the amount of hydroxychloroquine on the market has basically, well, now it's being depleted as we speak. Hmm. Now you're getting into a space where you're affecting people with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis who are not able to get the medication that they need, which then if they have a disease flare up, they need to go to the hospitals, 
which are now going to be and are already in some places overrun with people who have coronavirus. So mm. it's this vicious cycle against those ideals. Right. Um, okay. So we have some people saying back to work on Monday. And I think, you know, there's a motivation there to, uh, you know, because of the, the economy being what it is and, you know, things kind of being in free fall. Uh, so there is a desire to get back to normalcy, um, that runs up against reality pretty hard. I think, uh, particularly, you know, it's hard to know what'll happen by Monday, but if, from what you're saying, uh, you know, we're just now getting the tests and the infrastructure for the tests moving, we will see more cases because simply because there are more tests, uh, you know, those cases may have already existed in reality, but as far as confirming them by Monday, we will probably see more cases, uh, which will probably add to this feeling like the world is spiraling out of control. So we're probably not going to see Monday, uh, probably not going to see Easter, but when we actually get the, well, first of all, how do they say, okay, it's safe now? How do they say, let's get back to what we were doing? When, where, where is that line? And how do you prevent a second wave from occurring? It, you know, when you have this push and pull of, we want to get the economy moving, we want to get back to normalcy, but we have the public health challenge. Right. So I think that anyone who has a couple weeks optimistic take on when we can start going back to normal is definitely not looking at the rest of the world. For example, uh, 1.3 billion people in India were just placed on a 21 day quarantine, which I can't emphasize enough is 20% of humans. Hmm. And in places like Spain, uh, who have now seen 3,400 deaths, that's more deaths than occurred in mainland China. And by all reports, we are, we in the U.S. are still not close to peak. Anthony Fauci was uh, recently quoted saying the peak looks like it could be May 1st. And he just, for fo folks who are listening, Dr. Anthony Fauci is a 35-year veteran at the National Institutes of Health and epidemiologists and infectious disease expert. Yes, and has recently become him and Dr. Burks these superheroes or celebrities of sorts in the place. Yeah. I would say that when the average American knows who Dr. Anthony Fauci is, we have a problem. He was one of my academic idols when I was going through graduate school. And so many of the things I would read were about Anthony Fauci. And now everyone knows his name yeah. across the board. Dr. Fauci, this Dr. Fauci, that where's Dr. Fauci. I would recommend reading his, interview in science magazine where he talks about uh his current thoughts on the process and working with donald trump throughout this whole thing oh let's get yeah let's get back to this question of how do we know when it's clear right and i'm absolutely not in the place where i can necessarily say um exactly when we'll know it's clear or exactly when we know we'll be able to get back to normalcy but i will say we would have to be in a place where the peak is coming down and you see that in places like China, where they have, quote unquote, passed their peak. They're on the other side of the bell curve. Right, exactly. So whenever we can see that we are getting past the peak, 
that is when we'll start talking about things like getting back to normalcy. I do know that there are people talking about if we're able to, like I said in an earlier piece, do this massive testing and then do more track and trace at our possibility that certain areas in the country can have more relaxed uh, restrictions. But even that, it's too early to say because of the amount of testing that still needs to occur. And that is occurring. I do want to make sure that the one upside here that I would love to say is we are testing is ramping up and it is happening at an exponential pace now in America. It just still needs to be more widespread in the places that still can be contained potentially. And testing plus the self-isolation will get us through this because if we keep self-isolating, we're not going to be spreading the disease at nearly the same rate. And if we keep testing, then we'll know all the people who are in self-isolation who have it and who they've been in contact with and then who should self-isolate for further beyond the next, I don't know, 14 days to uh, four weeks, month. It's an, it's a whole country response and I can't emphasize that enough. We have to look at this as a whole country response. Interesting. Well, we definitely appreciate you kind of giving us the layman's version of this because, I mean, I'm sure that all that you've been reading and are and in your education on this, you know, so much more than the average person and somebody like me who's just kind of following it and its implications to our government and other governments. I think it's good to see that background from the public health take. One point I would like to make is that there is nobody alive who has really had to live through a global pandemic in a way where they had to respond, right? So the last global pandemic was a hundred years ago, over a hundred years ago. So there are a couple of people who were very young at the time, Uh, but this is, we are the first generation that has grown up with nobody having ever experienced anything like this. I mean, this is, I, I think a, one, a testament to modern technology and medicine that we uh, are have we can live our lives like this, that this is a novel experience, but it also proves we have not reached escape velocity. I could not co-sign literally every word that you just said enough. And if I could for a quick moment, just I want to get a little personal just quickly to underscore everything you just said. It is thought within the public health community and from everything that I've read and from all the people that I follow that we are not taking social distancing as seriously as we should. And speaking on my part, yesterday I attended my grandmother's funeral by phone. Mm -hmm. So myself, my cousins, a bunch of aunts and uncles were unable to attend a funeral in Buffalo, New York, because we all are taking this social distancing so seriously because I study these things. And because I know these, because I read so much around this, I have a heightened fear of all this. And you can, you can ask people within the public health community, they can almost see into the future of what we could look at by looking at places like Italy. Mm -hmm. And I hate to use Italy as the scapegoat here, but it does seem to be the one that the most people know about within the general public. So yeah, we've never dealt with this before, so I understand why it's hard to conceptualize why 14 days, 28 days, two months within a social isolationist period 
seems so crazy and unhuman and it's because it's unprecedented like you said we just have never had a test like this before and it really proves how much of our global economy and wealth is not i mean we've always assumed it's based on technology and it's based on you know work ethic and you know all of these certain engines ultimately what underlies that is a presumption of health and how much our ability over the last hundred years to avoid these types of pandemics have underpinned all of the economic growth that we have seen. And I mean, I think it's, it proves out with the fact you send everybody home for a couple of weeks and look what happens, right? This, (laughs) so Alex Long, thanks so much for coming back and joining us again, really talking through these issues in a way that just the average person can understand. Appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me on, and I'm sure we'll be talking again. Our second guest is another friend from a month ago, Ray Zong, who is an associate at the Kissinger Institute at the Wilson Center. She's looking at the U.S.-China relationship. She filled us in on what was going on in Wuhan uh, the last time that she was on. And this time, Ray, if you could just tell us what's going on with the Chinese economy, what day-to-day life is like, since they seem to be on the other side of the bell curve now. Well, within China, the difference between now and a month ago is that now we're seeing China on the downward trajectory of daily new cases. And um, for Hubei province, which was hit hard at the initial stages of the coronavirus crisis, you're starting to see some of the travel bans lifted. You're starting to see lower numbers reported in Of course, we always take official Chinese data with a grain of salt, but in terms of hospital strain and the usage of the temporary quarantine centers and temporary medical sites, that they're being used less strenuously is a sign that case loads in China is concretely dropping. Of course, there's always the risk of imported cases. So what they've been doing is they've been siphoning flights into Beijing, Shanghai, and other travel hubs into quarantine and monitoring centers to try to keep the retransmission of overseas cases into China at a minimum. Hmm. Is there a fear of a second wave, um, even though they're on the other side of the bell curve? Is there a fear that, you know, as life sort of begins to normal, be, return to normal, that those cases that do remain will cause something to start up again? I think because of the quarantining measures implemented for foreign travelers, overseas travelers, that's definitely something they're concerned about. And because worldwide supplies of protective gear for doctors, of masks and other equipment are getting strained by cases that are hitting the United States and the UK, I don't think a large scale sort of reinfection would be very good for China right now, which is why they're trying to be really careful in managing uh, infection rates. So what is the economic activity like in China right now? When we last talked, they were really shutting down factories and they were really in the thick of uh, probably a little bit further along than what 
we are doing right now in the United States when we talked a month ago. So what what is the economic activity like there? Well, this morning I saw this photo of uh, from Getty Images of some some workers at a factory taking a lunch break, except their stools were all placed six feet apart. And they were all sitting, you know, in a appropriately social distance sort of way. So I think that photo speaks to me on a number of levels. China certainly doesn't want to shut down its manufacturing and other economic facilities for a long period of time. But whatever the ramp up is, it's going to happen pretty slowly. Hubei, the province that was hit heavily, is just now sort of starting to open back up. The city of Wuhan, which is where the um, seafood market where that was um, the sort of epicenter of infections in January, that city is not going to be open until April 8th. So this is a very gradual process, and it's a it's a process that I think will um, take a while for China's economy to recover. But I think in this case, um, economic activity wasn't worth uh, the price of, you know, allowing this disease to spread to more and more of China's very densely populated large cities. And what does that do, I guess, from a governmental side? Um, you have a very authoritarian system in China. So with an economy that I, I would assume is, is really tanked in China, um, what does that do for what the what President Xi and the Communist Party had planned? Well, my earlier comments, I think, during the sort of growth and peak periods of COVID-19 was that Xi was sort of distancing himself from potentially politically risky areas of handling COVID-19 but now that China's on the other side, you know, you, you see him coming back into the spotlight. He made a visit to Hubei province and to Wuhan recently. He chatted with patients via video conferencing in one of the temporary hospitals being set up. So right now, as China begins to sort of emerge from the worst period of COVID-19, the, the government is definitely taking a hand in shaping the narrative of how they handled it. It's sending out masks, aid, and technical assistance to uh, European countries being hit really hard. And so right now you have a very active hand by the government in reshaping what it did and um, also sort of pruning out the not-so-flattering parts. Right, so they're doing a little bit of revisionist history, which, I mean, that's not exclusive to communist governments. Uh, <laughs> but they're trying to they're trying to make sure that the narrative is on their side. Of course. Uh, you know, history is written by the winners, and a lot of governments want to sort of paint themselves as, you know, winners in this. Um, but in China's case, what this means is, you know, some it, it's it it doesn't necessarily erase the existence of people like Dr. Li Wenliang, who is trying to, you know, 
text his uh, his uh, alumni group of a SARS-like disease, got reprimanded, had to sign a confession, and you know incited a lot of anger when he died. He hasn't been erased from official narratives, but what they what the the propaganda has done is you know they brand him as a hero. They say that he was a communist party member, which he was. And then say they they say in like very certain terms, you know, he was not a uh, person that was trying to rock the boat. He was not a dissident, you know, like don't like think about him as some kind of like rebel. And uh, so this type yeah. of branding uh, yeah. in some of the sort of protagonists of uh, fighting COVID-19 is one way of the Chinese government has been trying to reclaim the narrative by sort of putting their own branding on some of the uh, more publicly visible figures. Well, that is interesting. And since we have, I think, turned more inward on this, I think we've lost a little bit of our focus on what is happening in China. Certainly a month ago, this was a big story about what is actually going on. Um, And now the focus on China seems to be um, from some quarters to blame China for uh, one, really just simply allowing this to spread, but then two, to sort of downplay the infection when it first began uh, in their in, and to try to in their in their narrative to not talk about it. Um, what are the what are the Chinese reactions to? seeing you know that they are being blamed for this you know being called the chinese virus and things like that or are they just not really worried about that right now and they're just trying to deal with what they've got okay so because at this point the main threat of the virus is on a downward slope in china and it's not the biggest security threat this frees up a lot of time and energy to focus on other things and so you have china's foreign ministry engaging in this um i guess i would call it a spat um on the origins of the the covid19 virus there's one uh, spokesman for the chinese foreign ministry his name is Zhao Li Jian. he has been repeatedly feuding with U.S. officials over his Twitter account, over some of the press conferences, over other public statements. Uh, He's been circulating a conspiracy theory that it was spread to China by American military officers participating in war games in November. This is not substantiated. And likewise, we've been seeing U.S. officials fire back with... uh, also unsubstantiated claims that it was developed in some kind of biosafety lab right. as a byproduct. Uh, these, these theories are not really based in reality, and there's been some science writing in the recent months that have been have debunking these theories, but we all know how well that goes on the internet. Um, so at, at this point, the issue of the Chinese virus Substantively, it, you know, it has resulted in a lot of collateral damage, including China expelling the entire uh, 
American passport holding press corps of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, uh, Washington Post. So there has been a lot of collateral damage in this. But um, at the end of the day, I would also say that, you know, Chinese virus, it, the, the, the claims don't do any physical harm to um, Chinese government officials in China, but it has resulted, unfortunately, in a spike in hate crimes against not only Chinese Americans, but also um, other East Asian Americans that, you know, get mistaken for, for Chinese. It's very unfortunate. Um, uh, we have been seeing it pop up in um, cities like New York, in uh, Toronto, uh, in Paris. There was a Chinese restaurant that was vandalized with the words like virus spray painted on it. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, uh, the, the usage of the name uh, Chinese virus has resulted in some of these incidents. But it, it's tricky to sort of uh say you know outright that the chinese government has you know been uh like it's also something that i think that the chinese government likes to co-opt yeah it works to their advantage to kind of be the underdog in this situation right exactly when like materially there's not a lot being done for you know people getting hit by these hate crimes but they like to point to them and say like like, look at what you did, America. Look at what you did, like, Canada. Um, and and this is something that's been, you know, going on for quite some time when it comes to uh, the issues regarding the Chinese diaspora. Hmm. I, I would say that the, the there's been, um, that th- this has been, the name issue, I think, has been something that's ultimately had a lot of collateral damage, but... When it comes to sort of responsibility, looping back to your earlier question of, you know, has China's withholding of information done a lot of damage to how the world has prepared? First of all, I I would say that first and foremost, it's done a lot of damage to how China's prepared for COVID-19. And so it really just began at home and the ability of hospitals to sort of mobilize their resources, um, has really shaken up domestic Chinese medical communities. Um, you, this crisis has seen ICU doctors who are, you know, battle-tested. They're used to handling serious medical issues. It's shaken them a lot. Hmm. But and, we were, and the withholding of that information from the outset, I guess, has worked to a disadvantage to the to these health systems that are trying to cope with it and are really learning on the fly. Yes, they are learning on the fly. I, I, I think there has been some damage control uh, from China's part, including um, former CEO of Alibaba, Jack Ma, shared like a PDF of like lessons learned for on uh, hospital management of COVID-19 on the cloud. Uh, but the withholding of information made it so that something that happened at the end of December in Wuhan wasn't dealt with in Wuhan until people had started uh, their spring festival travels in late January. And by then, people had already been traveling, and uh, it made it more difficult to sort of contain the uh, international spread of the disease. Having said that, 
resource preparations by the United States and the UK have been inadequate, I think, like in contrast to the time that China started locking down versus when we started seeing cases go on the uptick in um, March here in the in the states, China like can't mobilize the like U.S. emergency preparedness resources. I don't think that's necessarily something that can be pinned on China because that's a U.S. domestic policy decision. Yeah, you you can name you can name the virus whatever you want. That doesn't detract from the fact that you need to be prepared for its outcomes. Yes. Like, you know, each state has to play its part to handle its own uh, domestic response to COVID-19. That's right. Okay. Is there anything else that you you think people need to be thinking about as far as the the, either the relationship with China or China being on the other side of the bell curve um, as we kind of wrap up your portion here? Uh, I saw today, I think in the Wall Street Journal, an article that was saying, you know, it's not just about social distancing. China's construction of uh, quarantine centers and uh, ways to treat uh, sick patients in isolation has also been key. And we're, we're starting to see really hard hit areas in the U.S., like New York, start to uh, turn college dorms and... You know, the large spaces like the Javits Arena into temporary quarantine sites. I think that's a that's a good page to maybe take out of China's book in terms of response. But I think, you know, this is still very much a work in progress for the U.S. Well, I really appreciate you coming back on to talk about this. I think that, um, you know, as we've as we've turned inward on this, it's we've kind of lost a little bit of the focus on what's going on. But this is a global pandemic and it's certainly going to affect foreign affairs going forward and relationships with countries. So it's pretty interesting to talk to you about it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Aaron. And finally, we're going to turn to Shihoko Goto who joins us as the Deputy Director of Geoeconomics at the Asia Program here at the Wilson Center. Good to have you back on again, Shioko. Yeah, thank you for having me, Aaron. And the world's changed quite a bit since we last talked. It certainly has. And yeah, so earlier this episode, we were talking to Alex Long, who reminded us that a month ago when we talked, there were 15 cases in the United States 82,000 in the world. Now we're up to half a million cases in the world, 20,000 deaths. Obviously, the United States is facing this much more as an internal issue now. Whereas before, a month ago, it was something that was on the other side of the world. It was China's problem. Now we're seeing true economic impact on a global scale from this. Yeah, yeah. So, so, I mean... This whole idea of it being an Asian um, epidemic, that it was contained, if not within China, certainly within the region, and the United States was outside of that, and so was Europe, that dynamic has changed. And now that it is clearly a pandemic, um, and the countries that are most affected are actually not in Asia, but they're actually in uh, the European countries as well as the United States. And European countries have now surpassed 
even what China experienced. Yes, yes. Collectively, the EU has suffered much more. Um, Italy at the moment is the second most infected, but now we are expecting the United States to surpass that. And there's even speculation growing that the United States could actually surpass the rate in China as well. And so, above all, I mean, this is a health crisis, right? It is something that is still not under control. It has, uh, but at the same time, it has changed our the way we go about our daily lives, all of us. Um, and we don't know how long that's going to last. And on the economic front, when we talk about the impact of this, it's very difficult to gauge because we talk about recessions or economic sluggishness, but this isn't sluggishness. This isn't a downturn. This is um, economic freeze. We are not uh, trading. We are not working. We are not engaging. Um, and those who are uh, still active and providing the much necessary um, services from healthcare to providing basic provisions, they're really putting themselves way at harm's end. And there's a lot of fear um, as well as uncertainty. So when we talk about the trade issue, um, when we talked a month ago, we were talking about you know, what does this mean for China? Uh, China's economic slump, the spillover effect of that, how that might affect the other countries in Asia as well. This obviously has um, gone far beyond that. And there are really a couple of issues that we're now looking at. Um, trade is actually not um, the biggest issue that we're focused on. So perhaps I could just get that out of the way. And when we, when we talk about the possibility of moving into phase two, Mm -hmm. really not going to happen in terms of U.S.-China trade relations. The dynamics of the U.S.-China trade relations has changed considerably since then. Mm. The bigger issue is about how are we going to meet the needs of a very different economic landscape. So um, the, the biggest issue, of course, is going to be about supply chain mm -hmm. and the idea of global interconnectedness. We had thought um, that globalization was not necessarily a bad thing, that greater economic connectivity leads to greater efficiency, which increases competitiveness, but also leads to greater prosperity for a lot of people involved. And the was more about threading that wealth and not just concentrating it in certain industries or certain demographics. What we are now seeing is that there is a tremendous risk to globalization um, because we are putting what globalization has meant, um, especially on the supply chain side, is that there is a lot of specialization. So everything is interconnected, certain companies, certain regions, certain countries, certain cities focus on a particular uh, manufacturing product. And when that supply um, network is disrupted, we are not able to access it. Mm. Um, so, so that's a big fragility 
The other issue is that we've given so much emphasis on efficiency. And so we talk about you know, just-in-time supply chain uh, production. So a lot of stuff in stock. High inventory rates are bad is kind of what we've been talking about over the last decade or so, or even beyond that. What we are seeing with this, when we see all this disruption, is to say that not having uh, supplies, not having that inventory actually becomes a weakness. Yeah. What we are also seeing is that countries are exploiting that weakness as well. Um, in the case of things like, you know, surgical masks, not the, the high N95 masks, but surgical masks. We see that countries like China uh, essentially buying up um, all of the masks they make within China and also actively buying the masks that are available in other countries, bringing them back to China and hoarding them or trying to distribute them and trying kind of buy goodwill from other countries as well. We see in the pharmaceutical sector that the bulk of what Americans are consuming um, in terms of antibiotics are actually made in China. And if we are not able to um, access Chinese markets, if there is a disruption, um, we are not able to access the as much needed drugs, one. And then we're also at the mercy of the Chinese government if they choose not to export those drugs, yeah. then the Americans are lacking in the necessary pharmaceuticals. Hmm. So, so it, and it's not just China. I mean, like we're, we're seeing India talk about um, not exporting any malaria drugs from here on out. Uh, there's no proof that malaria drugs are effective in combating coronavirus, but that's the decision of what the Indian government um, will be doing. So there's a lot of, you know, on the one hand, we see greater vulnerability because we're not able to access the goods that are made overseas because of this disruption um, with these borders being put up. Um, but also we're at the mercy of national policies that would prevent exports of what are seen as critical products. So this really shows what happens when an economy just basically stops. I mean, I don't know what percentage you could say that the economy is now functioning at compared to two weeks ago, but it certainly seems like, you know, we are down some significant percentage. Um, and, you know, that has a lot of downstream effects and probably has a lot of effects, um, you know, just going forward from here. Yeah, yeah. And it has tremendous social impact, too, because we're now talking about unemployment rate um, here in this country, but it will say overseas um, really increasing as a result of this um, economic freeze. Yeah. So what are we seeing in other countries who have been dealing with this longer? What are we seeing on the economic side that maybe we haven't seen yet? Here's the thing. So we see that China's economic expansion rate has really plunged in the first quarter. But what we are also seeing is that there is 
you know, China is going back to work. Um, they they will be um, up and running. And so when we talk about economic rebound, we talk about a V-shaped curve. Um, I the drop will be very precipitous, but equally significant will be this rebound. And that is what China is saying that they will be able to do. Hmm. Now there is a lot of skepticism about that kind of um, you know very rosy outlook on economic recovery. Um, in other countries, including the United States, the expectation now is what's known as a U-shaped curve, so that there is a number of uh, months, if not quarters, of weak or downright negative growth. But then eventually you'll, you'll go up and see some type of steady recovery. Um, you ask about other countries doing well. I mean, listen, we're in March right now, late March. Um, this hasn't really been a big pandemic um, until about three or four weeks ago. So it's still really very difficult to um, be able to figure it out in terms of GDP terms. But I think it's um, fair to say that growth, um, we have been expecting global growth anywhere between like three and five percent, um, that will take a significant hit and a contraction is also expected at this stage. Um, there are certain industries that will be harder hit than others in the immediate term and, and that's quite easy to, to pinpoint um, those in the, um, you know, the travel, in leisure, these will be particularly vulnerable. Transportation will be vulnerable too. Um, but all consumption is down, um, and and that is going. That always plays a the largest part of the GDP expansion rate. Um, so with that, we can expect um, a, a number of. Uh, difficult weeks, months ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, comparing this to um, the 2008 financial crisis doesn't really seem to fit because in that case, we had a significant problem within the financial sector itself. It seems like a much right. more appropriate parallel would be to what happened um, after 9-11. Um, yeah. and, so, I mean, so, I mean describe this as like the financial crisis and 9-11 and some other issues all rolled into one right? right and but you're quite right insofar as comparing this to the financial crisis a decade ago is quite complicated at that time it was bad economic policy that really led to uh, the financial system to essentially um hit a brick wall um, and there was a lot of coordinated effort amongst the G7 countries in particular, um, and central banks did rise to the occasion to try to stave off a lot of um, the slump. Um, and it could have been a lot worse. It could have, you know, it could have been avoided in, in the first place, but um, there was a lot of coordination. There is coordination at the moment amongst the G7, amongst the central banks in terms of monetary policy. Policy. We've seen the Fed essentially um, bring rates to close to zero. Uh, the Europeans and the Japanese are already at 
zero effectively. So there wasn't a lot they could do in that respect. But in terms of liquidity, ensuring that the financial system stays afloat, uh, they've worked together quite hard um, to keep the system afloat. But this that's not enough. This is a health crisis, and it's also really a crisis of confidence. And that's where the comparison to 9-11 is yeah. very because that was very much based on fear, fear of the unknown, fear of the unpredictable situation. So, you know, in this country, we've our, our response is a two trillion dollar bill. Um, mm-hmm. What what have other countries done to as far as, you know, when they think about stimulus or for, you know, just to shore up their economic systems? What have other countries done that are maybe a little bit ahead of where we are right now and as far as the outbreak goes? Well, all countries have done, again, like they've taken on monetary steps to ensure that there is plenty of money in the financial system. So liquidity has been key to all of this. But in terms of fiscal policy to ensure that consumer, um, uh, the impact on consumers is um is kept to a minimum as much as possible. Uh, Some countries have been more effective than others, but at the same time, it hasn't been at the same rate as others either. So China being a bit of an exception, remember China has a system um, in place where um, it is an authoritarian regime, it is um, based um, very much on state-owned enterprise, and they have a lot of ability. Um, to be able to control employment, to control um, spending priorities as well. So perhaps that's not the best example. But if you look, for instance, at South Korea or Japan or even Taiwan, the rate of infection is really quite small. Mm. Um, Korea is, I I think, um, as as we speak today, is under 9,000. Japan's under 2,000. Um, Taiwan's um, you know, like under 500 and yet all of these um, governments have taken steps to ensure that there are um, stimulus packages um, for instance Japan is, provi- is currently not only thinking about providing um, payouts to individuals like this country um, to the tune of around a thousand dollars um, to ensure that people are able to meet um, you know, immediate expenses. But they're also encouraging individual companies like utilities companies um, to give consumers a grace period, to give them a little bit of a break before right. their um, debts. Well, I certainly want to uh, give you an opportunity to let us know anything that you think that we should be watching for or thinking about because uh, um, surely, you know, we, we've got, I'm trying to do the same thing I did with the last episode and get Alex, uh, Ray, and you. Is is there anything? Is there anything that you're seeing that we really need to keep an eye on uh, as we're going through this? In terms of um, the economy, what we are looking for is not the here and now. I mean, the here and now is important because this does impact people's livelihoods. Um, It has already done a lot of damage, especially to small businesses and people who are perhaps the most vulnerable, those who do not have 
um, steady paychecks, those who do not have um, um, insurance, health insurance, or job security. So it, it, that, that has an immediate impact. But it will also, in the longer term, lead to a conversation about what does it mean to be a strong economy? What does it mean to expand um, economically and be competitive as a country? Um, we've already had these conversations, and this has really um, come out in the uh, presidential election debates as well. But that kind of discussion about what is economic resilience, um, what does it mean to be a strong country, um, will be given renewed vigor as we move forward try to emerge um, from what will be a great um, economic sluggishness, if not downright you know, months um, of, of recession moving forward. Well, I I'd certainly wish we could give a rosy picture, but there really is no optimist view in this in this scenario because we just don't know what's coming next. And that's we're just going to have to go through it. And thank goodness for people like Shioko who are keeping track of it for us. And I'm sure that we'll have you back here to talk about this again. But thank you for joining us for the second round of this viral episode. And uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you, Aaron. Well, there you have our longest, but hopefully most informative episode to date. We hope you stay healthy, and we hope to be back soon on Need to Know.